and welcome to the Mavericks podcast. This is Charlie Gladstone and this is episode 30, which is a conversation with Mark Shaler. Mark is an author, a thinker, in many ways a scientist and a brilliant public speaker. I first met Mark a couple of years ago and I immediately liked him. I don't think I'm unusual in that regard and in fact we discuss this as the conversation unfolds. It's really interesting watching Mark that he is a beacon of positivity and good thought I think, good vibes and people are magnetically drawn to him. Mark and I have seen each other sporadically over the last couple of years and spoken on the phone a bit. We mainly come across each other via the Do Lectures. Um, He is a founding partner of the Do Lectures or the Good Life Experience. And in fact, he's been incredibly supportive of our festival and has spoken once and held various workshops and introduced various other speakers. And after this conversation, Mark volunteered to come back this year to speak, of course, I said yes straight away. I always feel a bit reticent about asking people for two years because people do us so many massive favours that I don't want to overburden them. But anyway, Mark is coming back this year. So for those of you that don't know Mark, as I say, he's an author and and a brilliant public speaker. And for those of you that do, you will perhaps expect that this conversation is fairly long and wide-ranging because... Mark is a fascinating man with a million genuinely worthwhile things to say on on endless subjects. If I had to sum up Mark's ethos, and I think I probably nicked this from him, it's do better things and make things better. Anyway, with absolutely no further introduction probably necessary, here's me speaking to Mark on a dreary Monday morning at Peddlers in Notting Hill. After an hour or so of conversation with Mark, that dreary Monday immediately felt a hell of a lot better. What, what is it, I mean, what is it that you do at the moment? So loads of people listening to this will know Mark Shaler and they'll know you through your book. They'll know you through the do lectures. They'll know you through your talks generally. Yeah. But I don't think a lot of them will actually know what it is you do to put bread on the table? It's, very, it's a very good question, and it, my mother still doesn't know what I do. And she, um, and not just her, my, the, my brother also quizzes me on what it is that I actually do. It's like, Hove, actually, what yeah. does my actually do? And, um, and I split it into sort of two or three things. And the, the thing that I'm getting the most um, interest in is creative disruption so right. my, my business not mine the client's business is doing okay or, or not and can see that the future is different from the trajectory that they're on and they want someone to come in and wake them up about what they should be doing how they should be doing it and when they should be doing it so I, I work with companies that need to change what they do but not in a reckless or destructive manner which disruption can often mean, but in a building creative and future fixed manner. So understanding the trends and the insights and understanding where then you need to take the company. So that's, that's a chunk of, of, what I do, of what I do. And I only do that for companies that are doing good things. 
And that's I, out of a moral yeah, stance. Yeah, so I, I, my background's in sustainability and, and I, I don't believe in leaving the world worse than you found it. Um, but I do work with companies that are perceived by many to not be positive for the world. But I only work on projects that shift them away from killing people, making them fat or unhealthy in some way towards doing better things with that company. Because, you know, as much as I'd love to only work with Patagonia, Tom's, Tom's of Maine, um, whoever, whoever it may be, um, they don't need me. The because people, they're future fixed, as it were, already. Because yeah. they've sorted this problem. The companies that need me are the ones that are a little lost, or the ones that fear that they may be a little lost. And so I, I only do that kind of creative disruption for, for either good companies or companies that want to change what they do to make them less, less bad. Um, uh, and that's a hard thing to square sometimes. The second thing that I do is the sustainability work. So how do you create a company? Or how do you create a business? How do you create a product or a service that has less environmental impact? And this goes right back to my training. This is what I did. So what was your training? So I did a degree in environmental science at Bradford University. I then spent six years, seven years, working with small manufacturing companies in the north of England, looking at how they became greener, as we used, used to say. These words have all become much more sophisticated, but, but less, less bad. And that, that was an amazing apprenticeship. Because Why you, did they want to become greener in those days? I mean, how long ago was this? Just, this was 94 to, to, to 99, 93 to 99. So there was just the beginning awareness of, of, of carbon neutral and, and those well, sort of concepts. We didn't even talk companies. about carbon then, Charlie. We talked about pollution in its broader sense. So that was about solvents. You've got to remember, around about that time, the ozone hole was a huge issue, more so than climate change. They are inextricably related, and one actually bizarrely balanced the other for a long time. Um, we talked about the safety of our rivers, we talked about beach cleanliness, and we talked about clean air. We didn't use carbon as an overriding metric for environmental impact at that point. And actually, if I'm really honest, although it's an incredibly useful metric to allow us to benchmark and compare, it's actually really useless as well. And we'll probably come right, on okay. to that later. We talk about ocean plastic, I dare say. So I was working with companies that frankly um, felt a responsibility to do less damage. But more importantly, Charlie, they, they wanted to save money. And they could see that if something was not being sold, they were paying for it to come in and they weren't getting money for it when it went out. So that whole yield thing, and it, and it coincided with Kaizen and a lot of manage, Japanese management theory that looked at, at the beginnings of lean manufacture. So I kind of piggybacked on the, on the back of that. So yeah, we're gonna make the world a better place, and you want to waste less of your cash. Yes, you? well, and that, that actually is kind of the big thing that you get when you look you up through your website is this, you know, there's a big thing of, yes, I would do sustainability work, but I save, I've saved companies 60 million or 120 125 million. million. Yeah, it's yeah. a huge, huge yeah. amount of money. And that's annual, of course. Yeah. And if I'd been on a percentage, Charlie, I would not be here with no. you now. I'd be... But you're, so, so you, were, you were a young guy and you went to do, you know, a relatively unusual degree. Did, did, did this interest you from when you were a kid? Yeah, so as a, as a kid, um, I, I never kind of fitted in. I, I was one of those kids that had no one friend that was close, but I knew everyone. And I'll, I'll always remember doing computer programming at school and, and we had to develop a little program in basic um, which was post Fortran, but 
pre anything useful in computer programming. And, and I can't remember what I did, a roulette game, I think, but somebody did a quiz about all the members of, of, of this class. And his question was, was, you know, there were lots of questions like, who's the most sporty or whatever? And I thought that was me, because I was like house captain, rugby captain. I went to a state school, but we played rugby as a working class sport. It wasn't a, a posh sport at all. Um, and his question about me was, who's everyone's best friend? And when I found out, I was actually really offended. I was really quite hurt. Why? Because, because I felt like I was everyone's best friend and no one's best friend. No, but you're someone who wants to be liked. That, that, yeah, uh, well, there, and there's an Achilles heel that will, I dare say, pop up again later. You're absolutely right, but being liked isn't always right. Well, you see, I, you see this is very interesting because I'm someone who wants to be liked and I think that it helps you to behave really well in life. I mean, I think it gives you a good moral compass and I think it makes you think about other people. It so does. whilst the impulse might be, you know, essentially selfish, it does mean that your actions are better. Well, it, yes and no. So uh, this is fascinating and a really rich area of self-exploration for me at the moment. It makes your, your behaviour less selfish in one sense, but of course the thing that you're feeding is the, is the ego of being liked, which is really selfish. But in a different way to traditional um, selfish behaviour. Where I got into trouble with wanting to be liked was when I was doing a talk or, or and I, I do lots of talks, I'm, someone's quoted me recently as, you're funnier than average, which is, which is nice. I'm gonna put that on LinkedIn. And more popular than average. I'm more popular than average. And I'd stand up and I'd do a talk and the end result, if I was, I'd be really happy, A, to get paid and B, if people liked me. I wasn't thinking about people buying from me. So I, I got Robert, the most successful, unsuccessful person I knew. I was the most liked failure. Yes, you see, I, I knew. my view on this is, is very. Is, I think this is fascinating. I think about this a lot because I went through school, university, and life wanting to be liked. Now I still want to be liked, but I try to teach people who work for me that in order to be kind, you need to be want. To, you, you need to want to be liked. Yeah. And and actually, it's really important if you're if you're fucking up at work. It's really important that I am firm with you, but nice. And yeah. I think this is still related to wanting to be liked. So if I sit down and I say, Mark, you know, you've got this completely wrong, but you know, I, you're a great guy and I, I really like your glasses and, you know, and all the rest <laughs> yeah. of it. Um, that's far better than kind of having this kind of ruthless streak, which isn't, I think you've got to always remember that everyone is someone's child, husband, boyfriend, Partner, wife, yeah. girlfriend, partner, whatever it is. And, and I, think you've, I think you've got to remember that. And I think it can only spring from wanting to be liked because it's empathy. I agree with you. Being human matters. It matters more, more, more than anything. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. And all I did is tweak my behaviour slightly. So I used my talks. I still wanted to be liked, but I didn't care if people didn't like me. I quote James Victoria regularly. He's an, a, a muse, an amazing muse, and I love him. He informs a lot of what I say. And he's got this great phrase, I'm not for everyone, just the sexy people. And I really like it, and I, and I cling to it, because I still want to be liked, but if you don't like me, I'm not going to spend hours Oh, no, I, I like totally me. agree. I couldn't care less. But I think that wanting to be liked is my moral, probably informs my moral compass. Yeah. Therefore, I literally couldn't give a shit if someone doesn't like me, provided I've behaved in a, in a, way, a that, way that, that you're honor, yeah. you find honourable. And I, yeah. I agree with that entirely. And I can feel, when I'm talking, I'm like, like about 90% of people really get me in a talk. 
and the and the and the ones that don't really fucking don't. Sorry, swear. Yes. Really don't. And I'm okay with that. And I did a talk recently. I did a talk at um, I took my wife up to Newcastle. We had a dinner, and I was doing the after dinner talk, which is a horrible slot, because people expect a comedian. And as I've just told you earlier, I'm funnier than average, but I'm not a comedian. So it's a hard thing, and I was giving out awards, which is also, it's, that's a scripted thing, and I'm not good with doing what I'm told. So I was a bit nervy, and I had a bit before dinner and a bit after dinner, and my wife was chatting to the guy next to her, and he was, is middle-aged, white, the kind of person that would talk on International Women's Day and say, yeah, but when's International Men's Day? Kind of missing the entire point that we don't need one. And, and he was an interesting guy, but he was... Was he, he a member of the President's Club? He, he, I have no idea, but I would not <laughs> be surprised. But he, he, and he was a lovely man, but he was just a, of his culture, of his generation. And, and they were talking about feminism, and it was one of those, yes, but it's gone far enough type, type of conversations. And I couldn't really get engaged in it because I was thinking about what I needed to do in a minute, but it was all sinking in, all sinking in. And then the second part of my talk, after the dinner, starts with... Um, my journey through social history. So I was born in 1968, the height of the, the children of the revolution. Well, I am a, ch a child of the children of the revolution and social movement in America was huge. Gil Scott Heron. And I start with that and I play music all the way through because it bring, it's a time machine for people. And, um, and the second word on it is diversity. Okay. And, and I thought, right, now is my moment. So, and, I, and I'm in a room. <laughs> of white, middle-aged, middle-class men with maybe six women in there. And the industry is struggling because, one of the reasons they're struggling is because of that. That you, if you only look for answers in the same place, you're only gonna get the same answers. And I, and I just took the opportunity to say, you know, diversity really matters. The companies that are the most successful are the most diverse, proven, the Harvard Business Review a study on that, pr proven. And I got whoops from at the back and I could see the stony faces from one or two men who really struggled with letting other people up. I think they I think they I think people like that genuinely cannot understand. Exactly. They, and, it, and I think, you know, I, it, it actually amazes me that they can't understand. I mean, regardless of what their views at the end of the understanding are. But just so so there are two th so I want to talk to you in a moment about talking and about charisma, which I think is a really interesting thing. But just going back, so Tell me a little bit about your childhood. So we've done, we've oh, yeah. done university, we've done schools. So just tell me, you know, what, what your mum and dad did, grandparents. So, uh, solidly working class. Um, grandparents um, met, well, both, both grandparents love stories that are influenced by the war because they're that, they're that generation. So on my father's side, my, my, my granddad worked at the Triumph in Coventry. He made tools to make motorbikes. So he had a protected um, job during the war because motorbikes became motorbikes and sidecars and mm. arms and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And my, my, my nan on that side, thank you, my nan on that side um, worked in retail, which was very, very personable um, and, and was a lot younger than him. And they, 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 got, they got together and they, um, they had a good war in a sense in that they were, they were together during the war. And my father was born in 45. Um, and then once the war was over, my granddad then got moved from a protected environment because he didn't need to be. And he went and served in, um, in, in the partition in India, uh, which is you know, her, what, one of the worst things you could do. 
And then his second gig was to go and um, help carve out Israel, which the second worst thing, right, both okay. very oh. difficult things to yes. do. So, and, and, and so he, when he came back, he carried on working for the Triumph. He loved his, his time in India, actually, fascinating. But he, he came back and carried on working for the Triumph. My nan was a shop keeper. She owned a shop in the red light area of Coventry. Um, and my granddad was a firm socialist, didn't ever want to own his house. Coventry was full of employment at this stage. Coventry was brimming with unemployment. Yeah. There were 57 car manufacturers in Coventry 10 years before that. So Coventry oh, okay, was, so it was all starting to fall apart at this yeah, stage. At this, okay. at this point, it had become... We, we'd seen the growth of what was to become British Leyland and to become flabby and ineffective. Right. But, uh, but you, you got all of these car manufacturers kind of coming together and, and it, was, it was very rich in employment. Um, engineering skills were astonishing and creativity. It was the white heat of technology, the post-war era. Everything was going to be about technology and, and, and we were still manufacturing. Um, and we were struggling with labour, so we, we, immigration started in Coventry. is a beautiful story of, of good immigration where a lot of kind of um, Caribbean, Jamaican labour came over and worked in the factories. And well, That's where the specials came from, so we know that. It's the heart of two-tone. Yeah. And, and actually, I, I love the fact that it's never really had the racial tensions that other cities have had. It feels to have dealt with those challenges. Interesting. Yeah. Better. Um, but my nan ran this news agent in, in Hillfields, which was um, rough, as you like, and, uh, and granddad worked at the Triumph. And he died two days after the Triumph collapsed for the first time and was re-bought and rekindled by um, the guy in Hinkley, whose name I forgot, a blow. And, um, and, and, and so she left, he left early. He left when I was 13 and I really didn't, I loved him dearly and massive role model, but I never got to have those really deep conversations. But you understand or understood what it was that he did and, and yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Nan was one of uh, 13. Okay. Uh, actually, we subsequently found she was probably one of 26, but that's another story. <laughs> that may be for another day. day. Yeah. But, um, uh, his, her brothers and sisters, her brothers mainly, because it was that kind of patriarchal society then, all worked in the motor industry. And so your and your mum and dad were, and what what was there? What did they do? So um, my nan on the other side and granddad on the other side, m both also um, served. Um, and that they moved from Froome in Somerset to the Midlands, and my dad and my mum met at a, a relative's house. My mum. Um, secretarial work, telephony, um, uh, very good at that kind of stuff, very very, um, very serving but in a kind of neutral faced way, not too soft, not too firm. My dad was a photographer and my dad oh, really? was an only child, yeah. And, you know, a photographer for local papers? Or? Well, no, he, he, he ran his own at studios but initially he worked for a really flamboyant photographer, um, a guy called Richard Sadler, who's actually kind of semi-famous, he's, he's done some amazing prints. He's a teacher in photography now. So my dad worked in his studios and dad really liked that kind of, the, the arty edge of commercial photography, where business and art join and they should always be joined. And, and he decided that he was gonna travel around the world before he got married. So he said to my mum, well, I'm off to Australia. I'll marry you when I get back. <laughs> and mum said, no, you're gonna marry me first and I'm coming with you. So, the, so they did that and they became 10 pound poms. They left in 66. And you've got to remember, Britain in 66 was on an all-time high. Forget the World Cup, I'm bored of that story. But, but in terms of artistic integrity, creativity, music, fashion, Yeah, we were changing the world. We were changing world. everything. Yeah. And they left, they left the coolest country on the planet. And they didn't just go to Australia and go to Melbourne or Sydney, which wouldn't have been so bad. They went to a town called Toowoomba. 
because they had relatives there. Now, Toowoomba, even now, feels like Britain in the 50s. Back then, God only knows how it felt. Mum turns up with kind of like big hair and, and, and makeup. And, and dad, your dad's very creative. Dad was the swinging and... photographer. Yeah. And, and he had six job offers. And I think five of the people that offered his jobs didn't actually exist when he got there. And my mum got called a prostitute because of the way she looked. Why did they go? I don't know. I've ne Do you know what? I've never had that conversation with my dad. I suspect it was a reaction to... to, to, to to being an only child in a small village in, in a small part of Warwickshire and wanting to go and be himself. And find, maybe the 60s himself. allowed them that. You know, I mean, you know, emotionally, maybe they thought we're now free, we're young and we're free and... But I'd have gone to London. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think I would have done. But were you, am I right in thinking you were born there? I was born in Australia, so my parents, yeah. my parents arrived in 66, and the deal with the £10 poms was you got a £10 ticket to go over on the, um, on the plane, and you had to stay there two years, otherwise you had to pay the full price of the air travel back. And they arrived in Toowoomba, and quite clearly it wasn't for them, but they couldn't come back. And they finally got jobs. Dad became a lumberjack, of, of, uh, a parksman of, of, of sorts. Mum worked in secretarial, and they kind of scraped by. And then they became pregnant with me, and they wanted to come home. Home's an interesting word to define, actually. More of that later. And um, they had to wait until the two years was up which I think will have been November 68. I was born in September 68. So as soon as the two years were up, they were on a cruise ship coming home. So by the time I got home, I'd spent half my life on, on a water. cruise ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on water. And they came back and lived with my nan and then dad got a job in a photography studio and grew a photography business around commercial artistry. And, and he worked with people like GKN and he worked with the kind of the, the, the engineering elements within within the Midlands and, and mum worked in secretarial and then he set his own studios up which was successful but interestingly he had a business partner who didn't share the same aims as him so he ultimately went on his own very difficult time and and then we I was 12 at that time 13 and um and we we took, he took a punt and bought a really old schoolhouse in Sapcote in Leicestershire. And we did that up and we lived in it. And the, the mortgage was less than, the mortgage was more than the monthly salary he was earning over time. But we had a very friendly, inverted commas, bank manager who bent over backwards for us. Now those days have gone. No, long gone. And, yeah. um, and yeah. he grew a business and it was very successful. And I grew up in one half of the school was our house. And, um, and I loved the, the, the fact that some evenings I would be developing film for dad. L less often than you'd think, because if you get developing film wrong... Yeah, then the whole job's gone the wrong. The whole job's gone wrong. Yeah. So, so he kind of liked to control that bit himself. But I was forever helping out with shoots. I was the model in countless shoots, and I'm unphotogenic, so it was always a, always a challenge. Um, and then he, he made the leap into video. He could see that that stills photography was still going to always be a thing, but the future was video. So I learned to edit video. And back in, originally, we were, we weren't cutting and splicing, but it was close. We were using tape and a mixing desk, which cost £6,000 in 1984. It's a shed load of money. Mm. And, you, and you, were, you were running two tapes through and then recording onto a master with these big dials that you were turning the tape backwards and forwards. And it was really challenging, actually. And the camera would have been about four grand. So your barrier to entry in that world was about £10,000 
1984. Um, but he, he grew that. Of course, your barrier to entry now is the cost of an iPhone. Yeah. As Mark mentioned Coventry and its industrial past and its extraordinary relationship with immigrants, of course, the specials popped into my mind. Not perhaps the industrial past with its extraordinary motor industry or indeed the blitz of, I think, 1940. But instead, it's absolutely amazing mixed race group that emerged from Coventry in 1977, I think it probably was. And so I thought it'd be a good thing just to play a little burst of the specials. And then I started thinking, what's my favourite song? And there are, there are so many favourite songs that I couldn't really come to an easy conclusion. But I think this, Gangsters, has one of the best introductions in the history of pop music. So let's play a little dose of Gangsters. Without being overly reductive, it, it, you're a really interesting mix of this, which maybe comes through your parents. You're a kind of part scientist and part creative, aren't you? And that, and that, that is the theme that has ran through my life like Blackpool through a stick of rock. And so when you come into an office now and you're talking about, a, you know, you're pitching for a, for a job that's essentially a thing about sustainability, and, you know, to describe um, your dress now, you've got a, a sort of burnt orange... Paul Smith workwear jacket on, um, some fairly confident glasses, which <laughs> are kind of off-white, off glow in the dark, <laughs> yeah. um, a sort of crystal glass necklace, and actually you're relatively sober for, for normal. But, below the but waist, I'm always below, sober. Yeah, but, but you, you know, there is, it, 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 it's quite an unusual sell to get this guy coming into yeah. an office, as it were, full of um, men and women in business suits. Yeah. Um, and, and so, but you found a niche and it seems to me, and I wanted to talk about this because I've seen you talk a number of times and I've, I've watched this unusual magnetism that you have. Now, we, we, can, we can say that goes back to wanting to be liked and all the rest of it, but I'm really interested in notions of charisma. And, you know, you, you've definitely got charisma. What is that? What's that all about, do you think? 
I don't, I don't know, and but I But you have. accept that, that yeah, yeah. I do now. I'm 49, I'm 50 this year, and I finally understood, and I'm okay with having that definition applied to me. Why were you not okay Be with it? Because I, conf I confused ego with understanding that you're good at something. I confused those two things. And I am really good on stage. I hide in the spotlight. It's, my, it's, it's the thing that I like doing. Charisma is, is more than on stage. Appreciated. But for a long time, I felt that was ego, and I kind of, I kind of hid it a little bit because I didn't want to be seen as being egotistical. I know this is a fashionable notion, but isn't that just very British? Very British, yeah. Very, and I was born in Australia. I mean, I think you know. I well, I, I know, but you're still I'm British. Still British. <laughs> you're only there for about six weeks. I am so British, um, isn't true? But I mean, I think you know that that's a funny thing, is and this is. I mean, I I think that sort of you know, call, call it what you like, but we're going to settle on charisma. I mean, I think it's it is you know it is something that you couldn't do what you do without it. I, you're right, I couldn't get away with what I wear. I'll always remember, I, for 10 years I ran an agency or a, 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 an innovation sustainability company called Eco3. And as ever, I've never done a partnership that's worked. It's always challenging. I'm just removing myself from one now. And it's messy. It's, and, and it's, it's always difficult. And I ran that business with a guy who is a really nice guy, but was just a really draining, negative person. He was really happy being that person. That's, you know, he, I'm not going to complain about that. But I'll always remember, we, we were very suity and very formally. And I'll always remember thinking... What, he was trying to shape you? No, I think, I think we, no, I think we were really young. We were 30 at the time, or 32 or something. So I think we looked at it and thought, this is how business people dress. And we were working with the engineering sector across the Midlands, and it was very conservative. And, and I, I remember thinking, this isn't me. Mm. And I bought a pair of gold, I bought a pair of black beetle boots, uh, copies, not, I did buy some originals actually in the end, but uh, copies. And I put them on and I just looked like a short man, i.e. I got stacked Cuban heels, and they, <laughs> but they were boring boots and I just looked like I was trying to look myself tall and I thought this isn't what I wanted. And I had a can of gold radiator spray because I'd been spraying the house, because I was quite flamboyant at home, but I was dressing not flamboyantly. I thought, dash it. Yeah. And then, so I sprayed the boots gold. And I put them on and I wore them to a meeting with a pair of skinny jeans. And you could see, I looked like, like, a, like a fat member of the New York Dolls. But you felt, you felt happy. I felt brilliant. And I remember yeah. everyone in the office I was in, meerkatting over the, over the partitions. And I thought, I like this. And, and from then on in, I changed. And then numerous years later, I saw Steve Edge's lecture where he says, dress for a party every day and the party will come to you. And that kind of summed up how I've been feeling for the previous four years of flamboyance and I just let it go and thought you know I grew up in the I grew up in the era where it started with Scar and, and my teenage years ended with but I, I completely agree I'm not even convinced that's that relevant I think it's just that if you're re if you're confident in who you are then you wow. can thrive that's and I think if that involves so I, I think if that involves wearing certain things that you like to wear I think that you have to move on through that while simultaneously respecting it. I always thought Gordon Brown was a real knob going to the Mansion House speech without his black tie on. Yeah. But that was, just, that was just me. I just yeah. thought, you know. I did a black tie dinner recently and I wore a black tie, bow tie, but I wore a pink suit. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I cleared it in advance. It was a really weird dinner, actually. But I was due at a funeral the next day. And the funeral <laughs> and dress so you had codes, to have your pink suit. With, but the oh, no. funeral dress code was don't wear black. Okay. So I thought, well, I'm not, I didn't want to take one suit with me. No. But, but charisma's interesting. I, I always define it as when so, someone with charisma walks into the room, you know they're there. They're not the loudest person in the room, but there's something... No. There's something 
and, and you can get mystical about this, aura-y about this. It might just be the fact that the, the, the room bristles. Or so I don't know what it is. But people want to be your, people want to be Mark Shaler's friend. I mean, I've seen yeah. this on a number of occasions and, and it, it must be partly aura. And also, of course, it's because there's substance to what you're doing and people are interested. Yeah, if but, I talked about shite and, uh, and, and, was, and was charismatic, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. No. But I don't talk about shite. No. I talk about good things. And, and the downsides to all this, of course, Charlie, is I get hundreds of emails that go, would you mind if I bought you a coffee and picked your brains? Yes. Which, of course, is free consultancy. Yes. And I do a number of those. I do quite a lot of it, but only for people who are starting out. Yes. To or I, do, I sometimes do it for people who are lost. But all of this is fascinating. And I've been running a, a course recently um, within Do, but also for myself, about presentation skills. And the overriding takeout from that course is not about technique or style. It's about finding the inner, the real you and showing it. It's about being really comfortable with who you are. And if that who you are is a geek, that's okay. Just be more geek. And I always love, there's a really fascinating documentary about the talking heads um, where David Byrne talks about why he wore that massive suit on stage, and it was because... He wanted his head to look small it, or something. It, it wasn't that. He, I thought, he okay. wanted to look I bigger. Think. So the whole theory of big performances, you know, stage makeup is bigger, stage costumes are bigger. He, he's a boring man making amazing music, and he wanted to look bigger. And, of course, it did make his, his head look comedically small. But I just love that whole idea of, of making you bigger. And I, and I spend a lot of time... A lot of my talks were followed by people saying, I bet you watch a lot of Stuart Lee, don't you? And I didn't. I knew Stuart Lee from Fist of Fun back in the end of the 80s, early 90s, and found him embarrassing more than funny. But I did find them funny. And I thought, why is it... That's about the fifth person that said that. So I then went and watched... Stuart Lee online and thought, ah, I get it, yeah, okay. There's this self-deprecating, um, curmudgeonly funny delivery and, and I look a bit like him, overweight with a quiff, right? And so I got really interested in him. And I'm and I, and not in this, is watching his comedy because it's, it's always good, but I got interested in the mechanics behind his thinking. And there's some wonderful lectures on YouTube where he talks about how he constructs comedy. He talks about the creative process and I'm really interested in how we create. It stems from being told that I wasn't the creative one when I was about eight. Right, who by? By my dad. Right. And he meant absolutely no harm and I hold, it was actually the thing that's made me, not, not destroyed me. But I was told that my brother was the creative one. I was drawing a picture of the Lone Ranger for a drawing competition with Jason Wilborn which I lost. And, um, and, dad, and dad, you know, rightly looked at it and went, you're not the creative one, you're the sciencey rugby playing one, which is the truth, was the truth. And so I didn't draw for probably nearly 20 years. I didn't draw until I had children. But I'm really interested in, in the creative process. Where do you start with a song? Where do you start with a presentation? Where do you start with a story? And, and so I was really fascinated by Stuart Lee's approach to creating a character. And his character is him squared. It's him bigger. And the, the way he builds comedy is by making it so opinionated 
that people like it or love it or hate it. And those that hate it, he just carries on being more hateful until the point that that becomes funny as well. So in a really weird kind of way, him failing is a success and creates more, more humor. And I really like the way he built that character. And there's a little bit of that, not in performance style, but there's a little bit of that that I, I now use. So yes. if I'm talking about diversity, I kind of play the, 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 the metropolitan liberal elite to the, to the nth degree. But you're also, in your, in, in your talking, one thing which I always feel about you is that you're incredibly slick as well. I mean, are you a big advocate of being super rehearsed? No. Or is it just, no, so it's just that you know exactly what you're setting out to do? Yes, I hate rehearsal. And, and this is, so my good friend Dave Hyatt, from the Do Lectures and the Jeans Company, he, he rehearses, rehearses, rehearses. And I think it takes all the passion out of my performance. Works for Dave, does not work for me. Although, of course, David always, and lots of people listening to this will have seen you and him speak, comes across as, as sort of so kind of demure yeah. that you think he's not very rehearsed. He's very modest. He's really rehearsed. Mm. Yeah, it's his way. That, yeah. that's, that, and that, gives, that gets the best Dave on stage. The best Mark on stage is more intuitive. But of course, what, what you must remember is the talks that I'm doing now, and there's maybe three main talks that I'm doing that I've been doing for a year and a half, two years sometimes. Yes. They all need to change. And how often are you talking now on average? Um, probably once a week at the moment. At its height, I was doing four a week. So that was really is one of your, that's the main, your main living in many ways, or has been? No, but it's my main exposure. Right. It's probably a third of my income now. When it was at its height, I was being paid very little. I was often talking for free. In order to connect with people. And, and frankly, to learn my trade, to learn how to do this better, I had to do more of it. And I've not always been a natural speaker. So in order to get better at it, I had to put myself more often in really uncomfortable situations. And so I did it to grow a better version of me and to learn a craft. It was my apprenticeship. I've had two apprenticeships, one with the manufacturing um, grumpies of Yorkshire and, and, and one on the stages of you know, small business clubs across the country. And I wouldn't change either of those things. I learned so much about myself, even when it failed, which it did. Often. Did it? Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine that no, really. No, 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 totally, because, because you, with the speaking thing, you kind of get cocky because you know you're good and you know people respond well, and you kind of get cocky and a little bit lazy, and then you say stuff that maybe you shouldn't say, or... Yes, because you've allowed the, yeah, you've allowed the veil to slip off because you're too comfortable. Totally, and it's really good to be bloody nervous. I've done that once or twice at The Good Life, and, and, I, and I just think, you know, I have to pull myself back. And that's... Suddenly start that's... behaving, as it were, as if I'm a bit of a drunk at a party. Yes. And then, you know, because I'm kind of, I suppose I'm kind of confident, happy, yeah. And perhaps a little bit high on the power. Well, the euphoria of the moment is also a massive drug, and and so and so I, you know, I, I speak a lot, but I speak less than I used to. Um, and I often, uh, in fact, it's interesting. Dan Kieran, in his interview, in your interview with him, said something that I, it could have come out of my mouth. I have to talk to know what I think, and it's got to that point with me because if I'm not on stage talking, I'm stood up in workshops trying to sketch a new future for fizzy drinks or for a car company or whatever it might be, or for an alcoholic beverage company. And I, when I'm sat down, I can't think freely. It's almost like I've got a, I've got a kind of, there's a kink in the hose. And as soon as I stand up, the water starts flowing and the ideas come with it. I can't think sitting down. Do you also need to have conversations then in, in order to feel 
challenge because I think one of the interesting things about ideas is that you know you they 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 incubate in whatever way and I may have even talked about this with Dan I think but and then you need to voice them in order for someone to say but that doesn't work totally yeah so who do you do that with I do it with my wife if I if I'm at home yeah I used to use my nan who was ace, like mm. 90, she died when she was 93, um, a year and a half ago. And she was fantastic at keeping me, like making it all make sense yeah. in a simplistic way. Yeah. Um, I do it with my wife a lot. She's got phenomenal intuition and and she's, she's not a businessy person. She's an ex-social worker, but she's got a, a great understanding of, of trends and con consumers and the way the world's moving. We're a brilliant partnership. We work, we work together. Um, I've, I've had business partners. Um, and I do it with them. Often I do it live on mm, stage. Yes. And, I, and actually that's the most exciting time. And that starts to, that, that allows you to start to kind of form the thoughts almost as they're coming out of your mouth, does Com it? Completely. And I, I, I was talking to someone last week, I was in Sweden last week, helping build an environmental programme, fascinating centre. And someone said something, and I started to think about this idea of the children of the children of the revolution. And, I, and it's one of my favourite songs by T-Rex, and it kind of doesn't really relate to the 68 generation, but it kind of does. But He drives a uh, Rolls Royce because it's good for his voice, yeah, right? exactly. You can't fall the <laughs> children one of, my, of the revolution. One of my favourite lines. Now, no, it's <laughs> an amazing track, an yeah. amazing track. And, and I, I want to go and interview, I'm going to pitch this to a TV company, the children of the children of the revolution. So, so, so how do the kids that came out of that wild time, are they really boring now? Is, is Zowie Bowie, Davy Jones, was that a, a specific change that he had to step away from the craziness of of what he became what about frank zappa's kids how did they feel about all that bonkers moonmobile and all that yeah all, all, yes all of yes that. and i'm really interested in you know when you grow up in a house that's painted silver as david david Orban's house was how, how does that shape you now well i think i think it's it, i find this really interesting as a parent and i and i think um it's it's almost completely a rule that the children of liberal parents are a bit squarer, and the yeah. children of square children are liberal. If that, you know, we so, all push against what we have. Yeah, totally. yeah. So if your parents are covered in tattoos and kind of, you know, taking drugs and stuff, you, you, you know, you essentially wear a suit and yeah, you um, probably don't do those. No, things. and drink but, mineral water. But I'm really interested because '68 was the kind of height of the craziness, and I'm really interested in the in the kids born then how they've responded or not. To, to, to that to that extreme of um, social upheaval actually so um, yeah I'm, I'm really interested in looking at that and and, I, and I, you know I've, I've got four children um, I think as have you no, I've got six six bloody hell Charlie um, so four, I'm, I'm really interested in how my kids respond to growing up in a relatively flamboyant way so going back to the way that I dress and, and charisma I grew up in a small town. To stand out, you mm. had to you had to dress differently. I grew up in an era where, although we grew up in a tribal time, yes, that's very true. I was a new romantic, and I would never dress like a mod. Despite no, the fact I now love. I went through a, a almost parker. everything in the space of about eighteen months. I went. <laughs> I was I was new romantic, like Mister Ben's mod. best customer. Yeah, I really was. I I couldn't really figure it out, or a little bit of all. And and I love that play, but because tri I like the tribes at that time. Loved it. And I loved it. 
And, and my wife's really flamboyant as well. I mean, she's, she's exceptionally beautiful. And when she walks into the interview, she always looks and dresses. First time I saw her out before I was courting, went to the same school as her, but she was a year above me. So I never really had the confidence to approach her. But the first time I saw her out, she was wearing a sari. She's white. She, she, she'd just been, been to Leicester that day, got chatting to, to somebody in the shop, bought a sari and wore it out for a drink. And like everybody was, whoa, whoa. So when you're married to someone like that, you kind of got to up your game. Right, okay. And so, yeah. or I'm going to look at it another way. It gives me permission to be the person I want to be. Yes. And we work yes. off each other. And we've had those, I, Nick calls it the Paul Smith years. I call it the, 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 the Howies and Fat Face years where I became very, we both became quite conservative dressers. Mm. Sod that. We're, we're, we're out of that. And we're back to who, who we are. And we walked into our, we use a barber's in our local village. We both have the same kind of haircut. And we walked in the other day after going to that funeral. So I was in a pink suit. My wife was wearing a, a ginger flared suit with a massive ginger furry coat. And, uh, and they're lovely in the barber's. And they went, God, you're like two celebs. <laughs> and it was said in one That's syllable. That's because we are. And we're not at all. And we don't ever want to be. But I want to be, I want to be who I am. I want to be true to the playfulness and the um, creativity that I was told I didn't have. So, I mean, this is really interesting because, you know, you're in, a, I think, a fascinating position. It's a great mark on your CV to be one of the co-founders of the Do Lectures. Founding partner. Founding partner. Really, yeah, okay. really distinct definition. So Claire and Dave founded the Do Lectures. Okay. And then over the next few years brought people in to support them, like Buttress Roots, and there were at one point eight of us. There are now now three of us. I can't take any credit for founding the do. Okay, okay. But I can take credit. But you've for shaped supporting it. it. And um, one of the yeah. things. So the way that you're speaking about sort of you know being really true to yourself, finding the the best you can, um, finding the best you you can, uh, a lack of ego, all these things. These are very much kind of and telling stories. They're very much part of the do lectures, aren't they? They are. They are. That you know the, the do lectures. It. I, 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 if I hadn't, if Dave hadn't have created them, I would have wanted to create them. They are all around, they're all about taking stories that have changed people and making them and amplifying them. They're all about taking ideas plus energy equals change. And they're all about encouragement. And I, I love that whole looking under rocks no one's looked into under to find speakers who genuinely motivate people. And there's... I, we haven't, I've seen one bad do lecture, and I'm not going to tell you who that is. I've seen one bad one. Was it me? No. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Yeah, okay. No, I'm one joking. One of the first ones. And it wasn't bad. It was just not right for where we were at that point. Mm. The guy was clever. But no, I loved it. I mean, I think, you know, it's an astonishing, it's, a, it's an astonishing movement. And I, and I was, um, I came to it very objectively. I, I didn't, you know, I deliberately tried not to sort of, form any opinion on it sure. before I came and I was I was really blown away by it but uh, but but it, it is is it because you try and remove the sort of veneer from people I mean what so essentially the format is that everyone's equal but some people are talking yeah you're encouraged to sort of tell your story to be sort of super open to to not do something you've done before to not work from a script you know to do your best and all the rest of it is, is that why it's so successful, do you think? Yeah, it's about proximity. It's, it's about proximity between the speaker and the attendee. And you can't tell the difference. And, it, and it's not just a proximity as in the way we look or talk. It's proximity in terms of the, of the space that we're in. 
So, you know, you can be stood at the bar with the man that created the internet. And that is astonishing. You in, his, in his shorts and, and yeah, Birkin In his socks. shorts and Birkies, yeah. yeah. And you yeah. don't get that at TED or any of the other talks, all of which Do are not, amazing. No. no, no, you're no. very insulated, uh, isolated from, and you don't get to ask questions at those places. What we really want is to create that safe and open space. Well, actually, it's what we're trying to do at the Good Life Experience in a weird way, is we have no green room, no VIP area, no backstage. Oh, you're right. So that you, know, so that you can hopefully bump into Norman Jay or Mark Shaler, and, and they're on the same level as, as you, and we are Sarah on the same Bob. level. Yeah, we of course are. we are. Absolutely no bloody difference. But once there's a green room, people hang out in it. Totally. But I worry about I worry about my bank balance and my weight as much as anybody else. And so, and so, removing those barriers was a really big part of of, of the do lectures. And, and it was a big part of kind of your contribution to it. I mean, I know that David and Claire created this, and I mean they are you know clearly legends and, and amazing. Yeah. But but um, and I think you know lots of people listening to this will know that but but is is that kind of very much something that you continue to bring to it i think i bought this is going to sound really weird coming from a white middle class man i think i bought a lot of femininity to it and and, and a little bit of diversity of, th of thinking it was a little male at times and i think me taking over half the comparing has kind of opened that up a little bit and it feels more approachable and, and the amount of people i speak to I met one last week. She's she's an astonishing business leader in her own right. And she said, "You, I look forward most to your introductions and endings for the talks. And that really freaked me out a little bit because I, I see myself as like... Why is that, do you think? Because I think, I think it's an intense experience. I think it's an incredibly... The talks are moving. No, but where do you get it from? From your, from your granny or from your, your missus or from your daughters? I mean, wh where have you kind of learned this? I've got... I've got no idea. I think my nan on my dad's side had a real, she's a very, very interesting woman in so many ways, but I think she had a real knack of, of socialising. Um, I think my other grandparents were very thoughtful. My two grandfathers were very thoughtful, both very, one would, I would say one was, they were both left wing, but you'd call them liberal now, I suspect, because there is no left anymore. It's very, we live in very weird political times. Um, and I think my dad is is very is much more flamboyant than he makes out. Right. Okay. And I think you know. But but it, you're, you, this kind of this softness and this understanding of the value of of. Um, of I can't see where that comes no, from at all. If I'm no, really honest with you. No, it's I just can't there. See, that's just there. Just what you like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I can people have always told me things that they've not told anybody else. Mm. And and I the, for the first time it happened, I remember being on the train. This was this was back in the eighties. And this guy, a gay guy, was sat there and he told me he was going to go and have a, um, we called them at that point, sex change operations. The language has clearly moved on for, the, for mm. the better. He was having gender realignment, as they called it then. And, and, and I remember just sat there thinking, he said, oh, you're the first person I've told. And it was, I felt like privileged but I also felt responsible. What do I do? And I did yes. nothing with it other than tell you that yeah. this happened. And didn't I hope it worked. Didn't well offer for him. to go with him. No, no, no. I was um, no. There's a limit. <laughs> and, well, I would have done. No, I'm joking. I, I genuinely I'm being flippant. But that proximity. I was walking down Tottenham Court Road the other day, and I had my headphones on, listening to. I can't remember. I was listening. I was listening to some one of my playlists, which I really enjoyed putting together actually. And I saw this guy fallen over, and I didn't think twice. I just picked him up. 
And then I realised that he was actually um, homeless. He was actually living on the streets. And consequently, the, the, the beautiful blue Mac that I've got here was not beautiful and blue anymore. And, and I just and I thought, oh, I'm in it now. I can't, I can't drop him. So I just carried on. And we had a chat and a conversation and he went on his way. And, and, I, and I don't know what it is, but I open up more to people than most others. And consequently, it's reciprocated. And it can be a bit of a curse, like trying to get anywhere is hard sometimes. It's because you're kind, Mark. Kindness is a competitive advantage. This is a new talk I'm on. And I'm also... But kindness is also a... Cr I mean, it actually, it spills right back to what we were talking about earlier. Being kind is, is so undervalued. Well, it is. It's seen as... It's seen as I think it's often seen as weak. Well, it, it is. And there's some really interesting research, and I can't cite it because I can't remember the author of the book. But those people that are the kindest, they are the top performing 25% of a, of a business world and they're the bottom performing 25%. Right. So it can go, it, it is... But that, it but it, it may, yeah, in business, but not in life. But not in Kindness life. will never... No one's going to remember you, Charlie, for the things that you sold in 2018, quarter three. That's not, like, not going to go, but they're going to remind, remember you um, for the, in, the quality and the kindness of your interactions with other people and how you helped them and inspired them. And you don't go through life just to be remembered after life. But I genuinely believe that the kinder you are, the more successful you are. I, 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 I agree. It's I agree. I mean, listen, I, there are just two more things that I want. Actually, I, I have the sense that I, well, I could, like many people, I could um, talk to you all day. Two things I just briefly want to touch on. First, um, your do book is coming out in a fresh edition, right? It's out, just out. It's yes. out, yes. okay. Second edition's out, where I've added... Um, I always felt slightly embarrassed by my do book. Why? Because I was one of the first five. There were five books that came out of the, in the first tranche. And, and I felt they'd all be the same. They'd all be workbooks. I felt they'd all be kind of a bit like the do lectures. They'd be less didactic and more, more discussive. And so I wrote this workbook. It took me three days to write it, and, and it took me 46 years to write it. You know, it was everything I'd ever learned about how you grow ideas. Yes, but it was, it was very sort of fluid, wasn't it? Very and, fluid yeah. and very... And I did all the drawings myself. And remember, I'm not the creative one, so the drawings are shit. And, and I wrote it, and, I, and it was published, and I was really pleased, and then I looked at the others. And <laughs> they were like, proper books. Yeah, really wordy. Yeah, really yeah. wordy. And like, you could read mine in an hour and a quarter, but hopefully it would change your life. I, re I really enjoyed yours, but I, I can tell you now that I read it in the bath. Yes, it easily. It, yeah. You could easily read it fast before your bath goes cold. And I was, I was ever so kind of embarrassed about it in a... In a way, and then I was super. So you proud. wanted to, you kind of wanted to correct it. I, yes. And you've done that now. And I've done that. I've added more words. Right. Words are beautiful. More words are not necessarily more beautiful, but I think it's a better book now. And it's a different book. It's it's got the same core, and I've added around about twenty five percent of how okay. you how you you know disruption is a is a word that was never used when I wrote the book, and now it's everywhere, and it's boring. Uh, it's about how you how you harness creative disruption, not destructive disruption, and it's how you can be disruptive, even if you're working for the man in in, in a in a big or the woman in a, in a bigger business. It's how you can be how you can bring creativity to everything that you do, rather than starting on your own, which is where it kind of felt yes. like it landed. So the second edition is good. Clearly, I've already rewritten a third edition in my head. Mm. And I'm writing, and I'm, I'm pitching Do Present to Miranda soon. Okay. This is what I love about Miranda. There is no guarantee 
that I will be allowed to publish that book. No, no. But if not, I'm going straight to Dan. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, and then the other, the other thing I just wanted to briefly touch on is you're you're a vegan, right? And you're, are your whole family vegans? Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, yes, my all of the rest of my family are proper vegans. I'm not a proper vegan. So my issue with animal agriculture is twofold. It's a massive environmental impact. It's the single biggest sectoral impact on the environment that we have. Secondly, when you raise and kill animals on a really small scale, um, it, unpleasant as the end is, I'm okay with that. It's when you do it on a mass industrial scale that it becomes in, in, inhumane. And we have chickens at home, so um, from way back. So while my family are proper vegans, I eat the eggs from my chickens. Right. I'll eat animals if I've killed them. So if we've got, we had a, a couple of ducks that we didn't need, I would eat. I would eat. Them. Yes. And and when I go fishing in the summer for mackerel, I'll, I'll eat that. I'll eat the mackerel. Yeah. yeah. So so I do eat. I eat animals. But you're uh, I eat okay. Fewer than I would have done. And so is is your is your so your brand of veganism is essentially provoked by farming. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it isn't vegan. You know, I have to be really careful. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Lots I... of vegans will get get dead grumpy with me. Yes. Um. I I so last week I was in Sweden last week and if I'm honest, the food was really bad. Um, and and I started off by trying to stick to a vegan diet, and the broccoli was served, and I went, oh great broccoli, and he went, yeah, it's boiled in buttermilk. Why would you even bloody do that? It made it worse, not better. So I ended up having to eat animal product last week. I was very poorly actually when I got back, um, but I ate the wild boar and I ate the wild venison because they were hunted meats and they were yeah. done on a small scale. And again, I'm okay with that. Mm. And of course, I shifted my my food. I I became more ethical in what I eat. Um, and I shifted from being the guy that bought the whole pig and cut it up and smoked the cheeks and became, it's a really interesting shift for me. A lot of my projection on Instagram and social media and a lot of my ego came from, I eat better meat than you and I prepare it the long, hard, stupid way. And having that removed from what you do, I actually didn't know what to do. But what I did most of the cooking, my wife now does most of the cooking, what do I do with all that time? Yes. What, what, yeah. what, who am I if I'm not the person that slow roasts or slow barbecues a, 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 a hock of pork in order to make a, a, a beautiful bark on the edge of it and then pull it slowly. Mark, you're plenty of things. Don't worry about it. You're plenty but, of things. But it was a real crisis of identity that it brought. It was very interesting. And, I, you know, and, and I'm not... I'm not vegan, I just eat less, less meat, mm. and I try not to eat any dairy at all. Um, and, and consequently, it actually put, brought into question who I was in a way that I really didn't expect. It, it was quite fundamentally challenging for so me. So tell me, tell me what? Well, I'd, I'd just become this projection of this ethical eater that, that ate good meat, it's good death, it's good pain. And, and it was a, a really- And it was part of brand Shayla. Yeah, but I, you know, I genuinely don't think you can be an environmentalist and, and eat meat like everybody else. It, you, it's just such a massive environmental burden that you need to seriously look at that as much as air travel. And you need to look at dairy. I know a lot of vegetarians that eat so much dairy. That's still part of the problem. And we've got an amazing da dairy near us that's a, a Hindu dairy where they, they save cows. Obviously, cows are sacred. And they, they'll milk the cows until they stop producing calves and then they won't artificially inseminate them and milk them again and I can buy milk from them and it's about 10 pounds a pint I don't mind no it's worth it I'll yeah. have better and I'll have less 
And the, the revolution that we're seeing in the way that we eat is fascinating. And if you look at things like forest clearance, if you look at the impact of soya, all of those things that get thrown back at me as the negative side of how I eat, 96% of soya is grown for animal feed. Right, okay. Over 90% of forest yeah. clearance is there for grazing. It's a, we live in a yes. really interesting time. And we talked about being tribal earlier. We talked about tribal in terms of fashion. We have now become tribal in, the, in how we eat. And I, and, I, and I really try, I, I often use the word vegan when I need to book a meal at an event because it's easy yes, to understand. Yes, and people understand it, yeah. But I'm not vegan. No. But I eat differently okay. to most people. And the kids think it's hilarious that I use the V word. Okay, like, but yeah. yeah. But Dad, yes. you ate partridge that Frank killed last week. Yeah, because Frank killed it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I get it. Listen, I mean, I think I, I, I get it more than you can possibly imagine. I mean, I'm not commenting because you're the speaker. Um, listen, thanks for that. I just, I just wanted to make one recommendation to you because yeah, yeah. you spoke about the creative process. Have you heard the Soda Jerker on songwriting podcast? No, but it it's absolutely ace. fantastic. So the, it's these two guys um, from Liverpool who interview uh, songwriters on their process. And they don't talk about, you know, what it was like to be in this band. or So they've done a whole load of people, literally, from... Um, they've done Johnny Marr. Yeah. Uh, there's a brilliant one with Paddy McAloon from Prefab Sprout. Um, they've a done Billy Bragg. underrated songwriter, I think, Paddy McAloon. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, Prefab Sprout, they, they, they won't feature massively in the history of pop music of the 80s, but they do in but mine. But they do in mine. Yeah. They've done, I mean, they've done Paul Simon. I mean, they've done a lot of people. It's really worthwhile. It's about half an hour. It's incredibly well informed because they never go down the route of kind of, you know, of asking the questions that any other interview with a musician does. They ask about, you know, how they write songs. Do you know what? It's thank you. I will. Take it's really good. That. One of my very favourite do lectures was was a, was a one that wasn't recorded on purpose, and it was um, I think it was Will Green, one of the Greenwood brothers from Radiohead. Now Radiohead are not my band. Okay, I appreciate that they are genius. I love Radiohead, but I just. There's about 10% of what they write that I love. Yeah. The rest I actually haven't got the time for. However, when he started talking about the creative process, number one, he, could, he plays bass. He could not keep his fingers still. He was playing bass all the way through that talk. Number two, when they, whichever album it was, I can't remember, they had decided to look at how the band Public Enemy and the early rap um, bands made music and it was about sampling and bringing music together so they all sampled different things that they liked and then they brought the samples together and they put them in a table and they played them and he recorded this session of this cacophony of noise but but you could pick out themes and you could pick out strands and then he played us halfway through the production process what that track sounded like and you could hear the sampling still and you could hear the shape and then he played us the final track and you could still hear it. And despite not liking them as my favourite yes, band, yeah. that's the Stone Roses, Ovs, but I went out and listened to them in much more depth. And I loved that. I loved that narration of creativity. And Ma is genius. Johnny Ma, genius. And when he, he talks about when the Smith's albums were recorded, they'd leave bigger gaps between the tracks that were more emotional. So you could go... Bloody hell, mm. that was quite hard to listen to. And I kind of, one of my big frustrations with digital music is we've lost linear. You used to record an album, not a collection of singles, because you knew it would be played in that, yes. in that order. With life on random, and, and digital music's amazing, and, and, we, and it's, we've democratized creativity, all those amazing things. 
we've lost always. Well, I, 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 I could not agree more. And I mean, I think, you know, for, actually weird enough for me, I think if I'm ever asked, my favourite album of all time is The Queen Is Dead. And I mean, of course, one of the beauties of those sort of listening experiences is that you know exactly what's coming next. Well, you sing it before it starts. And, and it's in, my, my, my favourite band is probably the Stone Roses or, or Blur. But my favourite album is King of America by Elvis Costello. Much overlooked. He fell out with the producers or the record label. He kind of hides it. Yes. It's an amazing album because, because of the story and the journey it it takes you on, and then run the jewels at the moment. Oh, really? Run, okay, run that's jewels. interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't really get them, but I mean, I love King of America. I mean, I love Elvis, but yeah, no, I'd revisit run, run the jewels because suddenly I've got the album. It feels like rappers found some purpose again, and it's not about bling. It, 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 obviously, mm. a chunk of it always, always will be. And grime is incredible. Grime's the punk of today, and I love, I love that. Yeah, I think grime's more the music hall of today, but that's my own. But oh, maybe punk was the music hall of its I day. Think it if you really, th yeah. I think it became. Yeah, it. I mean, I get grime, and, and I'm glad there's something for um, for people to get out and really jump all over the place too. Yeah, get angry. With but them. but I actually kind of the more I used to think it was the punk of today, having watched you know a few kind of videos of people at gigs. But actually, I, I think now it's the it's you the know umpa umpa. That's yeah, really interesting. That is nothing wrong with that. No, I'm just. But I mean, definitely, the Sex Pistols and things were were, were it, musical. It became theatre. Yeah. In a way that was embarrassing, and it was only ever good before the great rock and roll swindle. Yes. And that's fine. Uh, yeah. That's fine. And yeah. you know what? It, 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 it was there, it was there as a reaction to prog rock, which became bloated and flabby, and, and then the reaction to pared down kind of industrial punk was new romanticism, which was incredibly floral, and the reaction to that was the Smiths, which was pared down. And, and quite floral at the same time. Both. Yeah. But I kind of love, I love music. And I love how one thing sparks an, an antidote. One thing sparks something else, which was an antidote to the thing before. Well, I just listened to Johnny Marr's autobiography on um, Audible, actually, it's and good. loved it. Yeah, I read Morrissey's in a book book and loved yeah. it, although, you know, a lot of people didn't. And, and then I thought, I'll never read Johnny Marr's. And then I heard him interviewed by someone or other, and I thought, actually, I'm going to listen to this. Yeah, I, I'm going to do that. As well as the podcast, yeah. I'm going to download yeah. that book. Yeah, you'll it. love it. Great. Thank you, Mark. Oh, Charlie, That's amazing. Enjoy. Thank you. So thank you very, very much indeed to Mark Shaler for speaking to me. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Mark will be coming back to the Good Life Experience this year and he told me that he may do his first run of his new talk, which sounds really great. I think that we should play out with a little bit of Mark Bolan and T-Rex and the Children of the Revolution. This really reminds me of when my children were young and we'd play it in the car, probably on one of those loops or possibly even on a cassette I'm amazed to say and everyone would sing along to some of its absolutely brilliant but completely absurd lyrics so here is Mark Bolan and T-Rex with the Children of the Revolution but before I go I must just say if you like this podcast and if you're kind enough to have made it this far then I hope you do would you mind going on to iTunes and rating it for me that would be great anyway thanks and I'll see you soon and here is Children of the Revolution bye Yeah.
good for my voice, but you won't fool the children. 